Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles, from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a cool and overcast day today in Los Angeles, but yesterday I found myself in Palos Verdes at Peninsula High School giving a presentation to Mr. Jim Macklin's Comparative Religions class on Buddhism. What you're about to hear is that presentation. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. So without further introduction, my presentation at Paulus Verdes Peninsula High School. So my name is Reverend Kusla. As you can tell, I, I, I'm not a sort of a typical Buddhist monk kind of guy because I'm a bit too tall. And... Um, and I hadn't intended on becoming a Buddhist monk at all. I, I just intended on studying <clears throat> Buddhism. But when you study something you really like, sometimes it changes you and you don't change yet. So has anybody been to my website yet? Kusala.info? Okay, good. Then I can tell you a little bit about me and why I'm here and why Mr. Mac keeps inviting me back. Um, I was born a Lutheran. And I was a Lutheran until I was a teenager. And then when I was a teenager, I was in high school, and it was in the 60s. And it was very important, if you were a teenager in the 60s, to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So I was one of those kind of guys. Uh, but then I turned 30, you know. And I realized I didn't have a religion, and I, and I thought I might be dead soon because people over 30 didn't last very long. So I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions. And in that book, the chapter on Buddhism made a whole lot of sense. So I read it twice. And I said, okay, I'm going to get another book, the phone book, and find a meditation center, which is what I did. And it's now where I live. I live in downtown Los Angeles at the International Buddhist Meditation Center. And uh, I studied there starting in 1980. And my first teacher was an American who had gone to Japan to study Japanese and ended up being ordained as a Shingon monk in the Japanese Zen tradition. And he was the vice abbot. So the first Buddhist I really came in contact with was this American guy. And I studied with him for two years. And then I wanted to study more uh, about the ethnic aspects of Buddhism. So I found a Sri Lankan monk. He came from Sri Lanka. He was an elder. Dr. Ratanasara, and I studied with him for about 16 or 17 years before he died. So I had a chance to hear how Americans explain Buddhism. I had a chance to hear how Asians explain Buddhism. And if we want to make Buddhism an American Buddhism, we're going to have to sort of do it our way. In 1993, I became a postulant. I took eight precepts and started the ordination process. In 1994, I became a novice monk, and I was a novice monk for two years. And that gives you a chance to decide whether you want to continue your ordination or drop out and do something else. Well, in 1996, I took my full ordination as a Buddhist monk, and then um, I didn't know what I was supposed to do. What does an American Buddhist monk do? Do they meditate all day long? Do they read all these esoteric texts? Do they practice Kung Fu? What do we do? Well, we have work at the center, exactly. I, I, I mow the lawns. I take care of the fish. We have koi fish. I take care of the dogs. I have a cat that I take care of. 
But I also volunteer in community. And I made the mistake of answering my phone one day, and it was uh, Deacon Szymanski from L.A. County State Prison for Men up in Lancaster, California. And he had read something about me in the newspapers. There was a small article. And he asked me if I'd be willing to go up to Lancaster and work with the Buddhist prisoners. And I said to him, there are Buddhists in prison? Because, you know, when you read about Buddhism, you don't think we go there. Uh, But we do. And I did for a whole year drive, ride my motorcycle up to Lancaster, California. And if you have a motorcycle and you go to Lancaster, California, it's like going to hell. Because it's always hotter in the summer, colder in the winter, and the wind never stops blowing all the time. What I realized about going to prison as a volunteer is there aren't very many women or children in prison. And when you take women and children out of a men's prison, all you have is power, hard edges. So I'm glad that women and children exist in the world because it really calms down men. It really rounds their edges a bit. And it's a military operation up there. You have the guards, and then you have the prisoners. And the guards aren't necessarily happy that the volunteers are going up there because now they have to protect them. If something goes down, they're supposed to protect you. And they gave me this little plastic box that looks like a garage door opener. And they said, just push the button and we'll come and save you. And I'm thinking, sure, you will. (laughs) And then one of the guards up there, the second or third time I visited the prison, said, who are you? What are you doing up here? And I proudly said, I'm a Buddhist volunteer. I've come to teach Buddhism. And he said, hell, next we're going to have astrologers coming up here. So he wasn't very excited about the Buddhist guys being up there. But I had some great prisoners to talk to, to work with. We did meditation. We got wool blankets and folded them and used those as our cushions. And I learned a lot about how hard it is to be a human being. Well, about a year later, I answered the phone again. And it was Mr. Noy Russell from Central Juvenile Hall. And he asked me if I'd be willing to be a volunteer at Central Juvenile Hall, where they have between six and 700 young people behind bars every day. And I said, well, are there any Buddhists there? And he said, not that I know of, but from what I've read about Buddhism, I think it would be useful. Because a lot of the young people here are stressed out. In some cases, this is the first time away from home. And it turns out to be Juvenile Hall. So he said, why don't you come down and just give a presentation and see how you feel about it. So I went down to Central Juvenile Hall, which is right next to UC, uh, USC Medical Center. It's actually the old mental hospital that they turned into a juvenile hall. And I gave my first presentation to high-risk offenders. And these are the guys that were caught uh, raping and killing and carjacking. And these were the guys that were most likely going to go right to prison from juvenile hall. So I walked into the room, and I felt immediately comfortable. Every guy there had my haircut. And I said, I can work with this. So the first question I asked, is anybody suffering? I said, and every hand went up. And I said, well, let me tell you what the Buddha said about suffering. And I gave my first presentation. And I ended up going back once a week for five years. And I found other volunteers to help me. And we were teaching the young guys and gals behind bars Aikido, 
Tai Chi, yoga, meditation, and Buddhism. So it was an exciting time for me. Again, I was learning how hard it is to be a human being. Whether you're a teenager or an old guy, it's still hard to be a human being. I'm also over at UCLA. I'm the Buddhist chaplain on campus, and we have a Buddhist club that meets every Tuesday in the Catholic Center. And this is the first time in a couple of years they've had a Buddhist club on campus. So it gives the Buddhist students a chance to have their own identity. And we have tables out there, and they hand out stuff, and they have bonfires and invite people to come. And I go once a week and give a Dharma talk, talk about some aspect of Buddhism. So that's exciting for me as well. I'm at the Medical Center at UCLA. I'm part of the Spiritual Care Committee. And I give presentations to the new chaplains in the hospital on Buddhist patient care and end-of-life issues. How do Buddhists die? Do Buddhists die different than Christians, Jews, or Muslims? And as it turns out, they do. Uh, I'm also in Garden Grove. I'm a volunteer ride-along police chaplain with the Garden Grove Police Department. And I have my very own bulletproof vest. I have a little hat that says chaplain on it. I have a jacket that says chaplain on it. I have a shirt that says chaplain on it. And the reason they wanted to put chaplain all over my body was because they wanted to let the good or the bad guys know that I was a good guy. So I might not get shot if something happens. But I'm thinking if the bad guy is an atheist, I may get it first. <laughs> you know, with chaplain all over me. So far that hasn't happened. So, not knowing what I was going to do as a Buddhist monk, it turns out most of the stuff I do is community service. It's helping people understand about themselves in a Buddhist way, and hopefully end some of their suffering. So let me just tell you a little bit about the Buddha as I understand it. I know you've studied that, and you've also studied, I guess, the Four Noble Truths. You've seen the little Buddha. So you have a, an, an introduction to this very vast topic. But for me, one of the things that I really liked about the Buddha when I read his story was he wasn't divinely inspired. He didn't listen to God. And you know what? I've never listened to God either. And he also decided to do something that the gods of India couldn't do. And that was end human suffering. I imagine one day in a full moon night, the kind we had a couple days ago, the future Buddha might have gone to a hill looked into the skies, and petitioned all the gods of India to come forward and end human suffering. And not one of them did, or could. Perhaps today, if you were to ask your god or gods to come to earth and end human suffering, you might not get an answer or a response in the same way the Buddha did. But you know what he did when he heard the silence? He said, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to figure out why humans suffer, and I'm going to see if I can end that. It said one day he went into the streets of the city, and he saw this really old guy, this really sick guy, this really dead guy, this really holy guy. He didn't leave home because he saw the sick guy, the old guy, or the dead guy. He left home because he saw the holy guy. The holy guy seemed to have the answer to some of the big questions. Religion seems to have the answer to some of the questions our secular society can't answer. And I think he saw that clearly. He didn't leave home until he was 29, though. He needed to have a child as an heir 
to the throne because his dad was a king and he was a prince. And if he was going to leave, he needed to leave somebody behind to take his place. So finally, at the age of 29, he had his first child, which he named Rahula. Rahula means fetter or impediment. Now, I don't know many new dads who would call their firstborn a fetter. But you know what? It works well in the story of the Buddha. Because if he had waited to leave, he would have been so attached to his newborn son and his wife, he would have never left. But the very night it said he was born, he left them in the care of his parents, went to the edge of the forest, took off all his clothes, found these old rags, tied them around his body, cut off all his hair, threw away his jewelry. And for the next six years, he practiced asceticism, renunciation, and meditation. And the reason he did that, he wanted to see where suffering came from. Now, I read about some of the ascetic practices he did, and I thought they were probably more legend than reality. It said he'd only have one meal a day. It said he wouldn't sleep lying down. He would sleep sitting up in full lotus posture. And I'm thinking, come on, people... People don't do that. And then I went to the sagely city of 10,000 Buddhas, which is a monastery in Ukiah, California, Northern California. And if you become a monk or nun in that monastery, you are not allowed to lie down at night to go to sleep. You have to sleep sitting up in full lotus. If you're a monk or a nun in that monastery, you only get one meal a day, and it's vegetarian. And you know what I noticed when I went up there? They were all really tired. (laughs) they're not getting enough sleep. And they're sort of thin, too. They might need to eat a bit more. But they're doing some of the same practices that the historical Buddha did to find out where their suffering comes from to see if they can end their suffering in the same way the Buddha did. So at the end of the six years, the Buddha achieved nirvana. The Buddha achieved the end of suffering. He achieved the end of his karma. And he achieved the end of all future rebirths. He never had to be reborn again. Now that may not sound like a big deal to you. And you might even think, well, who wants to end their existence? What would it be like not to exist? Would you just sort of like hang out and do nothing? You know, would there be anything there to hang out and do nothing if you didn't exist? But the Buddha figured out how to exist without being born. The Buddha exists today, right now. You can't see him. You can't touch him. You can't hear him. You can't smell him. You can't taste him. You can't even think about him. Because the reason he exists today is not because of birth. The reason he exists today is because of nirvana. When you achieve nirvana, you exist without being born. And if you exist without being born, you never have to get old again. You never have to get sick again. You never have to die again. Nirvana is the ultimate outcome of Buddhism. It's the end goal of Buddhism. I was at a Gandhi Day celebration last night in the valley and gave a small talk. It was an interfaith gathering. A Hindu came up and said, Oh, it's so wonderful to be around all these religious and spiritual people. We're all going to the same place. We all believe in the same thing. We all believe in God. And I raised my hand. I said, I'm sorry. Some of us don't. Some of us aren't trying to find God. And he stopped and looked at me like I was nuts. 
But Buddhists aren't looking for God. We're looking for the end of suffering. Does that mean that all Buddhists are atheists? Not at all. Most Buddhists I've met believe in God. But not because of Buddhism. There are a couple Buddhists who don't believe in God that I've met. But that's not because of Buddhism either. There are a lot of Buddhists who don't know. That is because of Buddhism. See, we're doing something that the gods couldn't do. The gods couldn't end suffering. So we're doing that. We're trying to find that. But we don't deny the fact that God exists. We just deny the fact that God can end suffering. What started the world? Some Buddhists think God was the first cause and started the world. Some Buddhists think it was the Big Bang Theory and evolution. Some Buddhists think it was the flying spaghetti monster. Any of those reasons are okay if you're a Buddhist. We don't concern ourselves with first cause. We concern ourselves with what we're doing right now. That's the most important thing. Not how we got here or where we're going. What are we going to do today? That's important. And more importantly, what are we going to do right now? That's important. So you see, as a Buddhist, we have a very unique perspective in the world and of the world. We also feel the ultimate reality is we are all interconnected and interdependent. That none of us can live separately. We all need each other. And we need the world. This world of samsara, the Buddha called it. The world where all birth and death occur. We need this world. This is where we exist. This is where we live. It's not a very good world, actually. It's always trying to kill us. Some people have this sort of warm, fuzzy feeling about Mother Nature. Oh, look at Mother Nature. Isn't Mother Nature wonderful? But you know what I think about Mother Nature? I think she's out to get me. Why are those lions and tigers and bears in the forest if she's not out to get me? Why did she create poison ivy and poison oak if she's not out to get me? How about those poison spiders and snakes, too? You know, if I was left out in the forest for a week, I'd be a goner. I don't know what to eat. I don't know where the water is. I don't know how to build a shelter. Mother Nature is tough. If you don't know, she kills you. And it's always been that way. So we've created houses and clothing and, and armies, medical care, just so we don't have to die quite as soon. Back in the old days, you know, 1800s, 1700s, if you lived to be 40 or 50, you were an old person. Now it's, they're talking 70, 75. So we're making progress. But how long does it take to die if you can't breathe? Seven, eight minutes, maybe. How long does it take to die if you can't find water? Maybe eight, nine days. How long does it take to die if you can't find food? 30, 40, 50 days. So we need certain conditions to sustain our life. And the Buddha taught us that we are conditional and interconnected, that we cannot live independently. We can never live independently. So when I look at a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim, a Hindu, I know that I am connected to them, but I am not the same as them. And that's a little different thing. My goal is not to make everything one. One is an illusion. My goal is to make everything connected.
if we're connected and unified, that gives us a chance to be who we need to be. We can have individuality and be, still be connected to the, everybody else. If we're all one, then any kind of individuality is considered not so good. And I know people want us to be one, like the Hindu last night. Oh, we're all one, going to the same place. But I like being connected rather than being one. So what did the Buddha say? What did the Buddha say about the suffering? How can we end it? Well, you've heard the Four Noble Truths. I'll just go over them real quickly. First truth is that life sucks. Life sucks because we're born, because we're born we have to get old, because we have to get old and get sick. We're going to have to die. Even Christ had to die. If that's not bad enough, everything in our life that we truly cherish, want to hold on to, is going to be taken away from us. And the culprit is impermanence and change. Everything changes. If you like how you are today, you will be disappointed tomorrow. If you like your boyfriend or girlfriend today, you may be disappointed in a couple months because they're going to change and you're going to change. How hard is it to stay married for years and years and years when both of them are changing every day? Very difficult. If that's not bad enough, there are people in this world we don't like, places in this world we don't want to be in. We are around those people and in those places far too often, and there's nothing we can do about it. So the first truth is that life is ultimately unsatisfactory. It's not always unsatisfactory. There are many good moments in our life, but it always ends up being unsatisfactory. The second truth is, the reason our life is unsatisfactory is because we are selfish. Every moment of every day, we're trying to hold on to the good stuff and push away the bad stuff. And we can't do it, because we are born in original ignorance. We do not have original sin in Buddhism. We have original ignorance. We're born stupid, can't see reality the way it really is, try to hold on and push away stuff, and we never get it right. Third truth, nirvana. Nirvana is the end of suffering. It's the end of karma. It's the end of all future rebirths. Fourth truth, the noble eightfold path. The path leading to nirvana. The path leading to the end of suffering. The prescription, the physician known as the Buddha wrote out to each and every one of us who is suffering. And what is this noble eightfold path? It's right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. We can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories. Personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. In the first category of personal discipline, we find right speech, right action, and right livelihood. The Buddha said there are four kinds of speech that always increase our suffering. They are false, malicious, harsh, or gossip, idle chatter. Those four kinds of speech always increase our suffering. The Buddha said there are three kinds of action that always increase our suffering. Killing, stealing, and sexual misconduct. What's the problem with killing? In the first place, it's really hard to be born. If you're a Christian, this may be your first time here. Welcome. If you're a Hindu, welcome back. It is hard to be born as a human being. And then when you finally are born as a human being, you're only alive 50, 60, 70 years, and then you die. you got a lot of work to do. 
if you take a human life, you're not allowing them to achieve their full potential as a human being. They may not have had enough time yet. And they may not be coming back ever again as a human being. You don't know. But not only are we concerned about human beings, we're concerned about all living creatures. When I talk to people about how to practice not killing, I say start big. I say wake up tomorrow morning and the first thought in your head is today I'm not killing any human beings. And you leave your house and you go through the whole day and you succeed and you feel good about yourself. Didn't kill anyone today. So when you get good at not killing human beings, now I want you to think about not killing the cockroaches, the spiders, the ants, and the mosquitoes. That is so hard. Have you ever had a mosquito at 3 o'clock in the morning buzzing your head? Wow. Now you're not going to get up, catch him, take him outside. You're going to kill that sucker. Maybe you're going to hope he has a good rebirth, but you're going to kill him. So the idea in Buddhist practice is to honor all life. Not killing even the mosquito who sucks your blood. Make your blood an offering. Hope that he lives well because you made your donation. <laughs> Sometimes it happens that way. <laughs> okay. Not taking what is not given. Not stealing. This is so difficult because there's a lot of stuff we don't even think we're stealing. Say your class leaves and there's a pencil left back on one of the desks and nobody's going to claim it. And you need a pencil. And you just go take the pencil. Nobody's going to miss a pencil. It's not worth very much. But we call that stealing. And if you take things from people, they will feel sad and suffer. I remember back in the 80s, I had an Opel Manta. That's a car made in Germany. It was a two-door Four on the floor, flag blue, audio cassette in the dashboard. It was my Corvette. It was only 3700 bucks out the door. I drove it like a king. One day I'm getting in my car to go to work, and I realized the night before somebody had broken into it. The window was shattered, the glass was lying on the ground, and there where the cassette radio used to be was just a hole looking back at me. And I was so mad... This is my first new car. And I started yelling at my car. I said, car, who owns you? Aren't I making the payments? Don't I pay the insurance on you? Aren't you my car? And my car said nothing back to me. <laughs> and I just realized at that moment, I'm simply using that car until somebody wants it more than I do. I don't really own it. And then I looked in the mirror and I said, do I even own me? Can I prevent myself from getting wrinkles or gray hair or losing hair? Can I prevent myself from getting sick? Can I prevent myself from dying? Why do I think I own myself? And if I don't even own myself, how could I ever think about owning anybody else? No way. So ownership is an illusion, but it's a very strong illusion. And when you take things from people who think they own those things, you create suffering. In Buddhism, we don't have right and wrong. In Buddhism, we don't have justice. In Buddhism, we have karma. In Buddhism, we say you are unskillful if you are suffering more or the people around you are suffering more. We don't say you're evil. Just say you're unskillful. And you are skillful when you are suffering less and those people around you are suffering less. So it's skillful and unskillful, more suffering, less suffering.
We don't have right and wrong because we don't have a divine lawgiver to determine for us what is right and wrong. But instead, we have karma. Has anybody seen that TV show, My Name is Earl? Okay, that's all about karma. It's a great show. First season's out in DVD now. Now we come to a very complicated one, sexual misconduct. Because it seems today in 2006, everything is okay. You know, when I was a young lad, we could only do half the stuff you guys can do today and feel good about it. We had a lot of guilt stuff happening back in the 50s and 60s, you know. But it seems to be very liberated today. And everybody's just trying to find their own real self when it comes to sexuality. Well, let me tell you what the Buddha said about sexuality. He said the activity of sex will never, ever satisfy the desire for sex. Which means you can have sex 10,000 times and still want it again. Now, if that's not a bummer, I don't know what is. So there's nothing at all wrong with sex. I mean... Really, that's why we're all here. People have asked me, well, why are you here, Kusla? I said, I'm here because my parents had sex and I had karma. That's why I showed up. So there's nothing wrong with sex. There's something wrong with the desire for sex because you can't satisfy that desire. When the Buddha achieved his nirvana, he ended his desire and he became celibate. He didn't want to have sex anymore. If you didn't have desire for sex, would you want to have sex again? Think of all that extra time and money you could have if you didn't want to have sex. But that desire is difficult to lose because you lose it in nirvana. So if you still want to have sex, this is what the Buddha said. He said, don't have sex with people who are married because that causes a lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people who are engaged. That causes a lot of suffering. Don't have sex with people who are being supported by their parents, children, because that causes a lot of suffering. And don't have sex with people against their will. Those are the four things the Buddha said. That was it. So if you follow those guidelines, you'll reduce suffering and have good karma. Right livelihood. The Buddha said, can you find a job that reduces suffering and still make a living and still be comfortable? Or does the job you pick and find increase suffering, like making atom bombs? I was giving a talk at USC to some business majors, and one of the guys was a Buddhist, and he raised his hand, and he said, is it okay to make a lot of money, Reverend Kusala? And I said, oh, yes, think how much more money you can give away. So make as much money as you can. Be like Bill Gates, richest man in the world. He's giving it back now. He's got these foundations going. He's helping a lot of people. So don't own your money. Use your money. And make that money in a way that reduces suffering, not increases suffering. That's how we start in Buddhism. That's the very first place. What we say and what we do, we look at that. And we see, are what I'm saying and what I'm doing increasing suffering or decreasing suffering? What's the deal? Now we go into meditation. Meditation is changing the way you think. It's transforming your consciousness. The Buddha said, our mind leads our speech and action into the world. 
And if we have a skillful mind, we will have skillful speech and action. If we have an unskillful mind, we will have unskillful speech and action. There are three path factors in this category. They are right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Right effort's all about the mind. It's not about the body. Right effort means to prevent unskillful thoughts from arising. To develop skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen. To abandon skillful thoughts that are already there. Unskillful thoughts. And to maintain skillful thoughts when they're in place. So we prevent unskillful thoughts, we abandon unskillful thoughts, we develop skillful thoughts, and we maintain skillful thoughts. And you say, well, what is a skillful thought? A skillful thought is one that's based in love, generosity, compassion, and wisdom. What's an unskillful thought? It's one that's based in lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, to give you a personal example of an unskillful thought, just the other night I found myself at Vaughn's supermarket, and I was on the bakery aisle. And there in front of me was a rather large stack of Entenmann's chocolate cakes, the one with the cream filling. And I said to myself, I'm buying two, one for tonight and one for tomorrow. And then I reflected on that thought and realized, that's greed. If it was a generous thought, I'd buy two One for me, one for you. So that's how it starts. It starts by becoming aware of your thought process and categorizing them, unskillful, skillful, unskillful, skillful. That's it. Two kinds of Buddhist meditation. Vipassana, samatha, insight, tranquility. The Buddha was taught how to do tranquility meditation by the yogis of India. The Buddha rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to achieve nirvana. The reason I use the word rediscovered is because we consider this Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, to be the 28th Buddha. There were 27 before him on earth. And we already know who the next Buddha is going to be, the 29th coming. His name is Maitreya Buddha. And he'll come to earth as soon as the last person who knows Buddhism on earth dies. So far, there's a lot of us that still know about Buddhism. So I got a feeling Maitreya won't be showing up anytime soon. Insight meditation allows us to cut through our delusions, to free ourselves from how we think life is, and see life exactly the way It is. There are four kinds of insight meditation. Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects, and mindfulness of sensations. Imagine we're going to do mindfulness of sensations. And we're all sitting on the floor sort of like this, and we bring our attention to the tip of our nose. You become aware of the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. And we get a little bit focused, we get a little bit concentrated, and now we take our mind and we start at the top of our head and we work down to the tip of our toes and then we go back up again. And what we're looking for is any kind of sensation, good, bad, or neutral, physically or emotionally. And say you've been sitting there for quite a while, now your knees hurt and your mind stops at the knees and says, uncomfortable. And you let that go and go to the next one. And now your back starts to hurt, and your mind finds that sensation uncomfortable. 
And at first, it seems like our whole body is just filled with all these uncomfortable sensations. But as you get deeper and deeper into your concentration and meditation, sometimes you have bliss and rapture arising in your body, and the hair on the back of your neck stands up, and you have these tingly, warm flows and sensations going through you. And you're going, okay, cool, pleasant sensation, finally. Now, after you've gone through this about a half hour, 45 minutes, then you go into a deep state of reflection. And what you want to find are the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that are found in every sensation we have. The first aspect of Buddhist wisdom is impermanence. Were all these sensations impermanent? Did they change, or were they always the same? And if you thought about it, you'd say, well, no, they didn't always feel as bad all the time. Sometimes they get a little bit better. Sometimes the sensations almost seem to go away for a while and maybe come back in another part of my body. But none of the sensations seem to exist and be as strong or as weak for very long. There was always that sort of vibratory nature to the sensations, that sort of flux. So you come to the conclusion that, yes, every sensation, whether it be mental or physical, was impermanent. It didn't last very long the same way. And now you take that and you look at the world. And you say, is everything in this world impermanent? Is there one thing that doesn't change in this world? Is there one thing in this world that doesn't fluctuate? And you have to say, no, everything fluctuates. Everything changes. So you got one of those Buddhist aspects of wisdom down, you got two more to go. The second one, <clears throat> were all these sensations unsatisfactory? Were they all connected to suffering? And then you remember that time when you had that little energy flow up the back of your neck and the hair stood up and you went, oh no, there were some good sensations as I was meditating. Most of them were bad, but there were a couple good ones. But then you'd say to yourself, because of impermanence, the good ones had to change, and when they changed, they became unsatisfactory because you didn't want them to change. So because of impermanence, everything ultimately seems to become unsatisfactory sooner or later. So now you've got two of these aspects of Buddhist wisdom down and one more to go. Did any of these sensations have an original essence? Did any of these sensations have a soul or a self that existed independently? Or were all of these sensations conditional? Now, one of my favorite books from the 70s was Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which is still being published. And Robert Pierzig wrote that book, and he wrote a Superhawk 400. And his buddy had a BMW. And his buddy always felt the BMW had more quality than the Honda. So I imagined if I had written the book, I would have taken both these guys out to a Kmart parking lot give them a whole bunch of tools, and say to them, take apart your motorcycles to the 10,000 pieces that exist in them. Just take them all apart. And now give each one of them a magnifying glass and say to them, find me the quality of your motorcycle. In which piece does it reside? In which part does it exist? And so I imagine them taking their magnifying glass, going from piece to piece, part to part, looking for the motorcycle quality, and not finding it. And yet somehow when all these pieces came together and created one, quality arose. We could see the quality. We could hear the quality. We could feel the quality. But we couldn't really say where it came from. 
And every time you look in the mirror and see you, see yourself as one, where is your quality? In which, in which peace does it reside? Where does your soul exist? Back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, they wanted to find where the soul existed. And they had just invented the x-ray machine. And they got all these people, and they x-rayed them. They must have had so much radiation going through their bodies, looking for where the soul existed. Some guys said it was right behind the pituitary gland. Okay. But then how much did the soul weigh? was the next question. And so you know what they did? They would weigh a body just before it died, and then they'd weigh the body again after it died, and the difference in weight would be how much the soul weighed. Of course, they weren't taking into account the loss of fluids and other things. But, but you can see from this example that we've searched long and hard for the quality in ourselves. And we keep coming up empty-handed. Now, one of the things I get to do being a police chaplain is I get to go to the Orange County Coroner's Office and look at dead people. I get to see them being autopsied. And it is so cool. Because you guys can't go. You know why? Because you're not invited. Nobody wants anybody to see dead people. Because because the last great secret is in there. Where they take apart the dead people. So I got to watch them take apart dead people. And you know what kind of tools they use? They use garden tools. Like the kind of stuff you cut branches with. That's what they pop your, your, your chest with. And I'm going, wow. And then I'm looking at these people. But you know what? They're no longer people. They're just bodies. Because when that essence, when that soul, when that karmic energy, whatever you want to call it, leaves your body, your body is no good. It doesn't even make a good doorstop because it smells. So I'm looking at these bodies and I'm thinking, wow, look at all the colors. They have blues and purples and a lot of yellow. And I said, what's the yellow in there? They said, that's the cholesterol. And I went, whoa, a lot of cholesterol. It's a beautiful color, but it's not good for you. So, you know, I'm there and I'm listening to the deputy coroner talk about what they do and how they do it. And somebody touches my shoulder and I turn around and it's like nobody within 10 feet of me. And I just had this sensation that I've been touched from the other side, that there's something else here, that all these people really aren't dead, just their bodies are dead, but that sort of energy continues to live on. Oh, it was a trippy experience. And so we were having our debriefing. We were eating our muffins and drinking our coffee. And I raised my hand, being the Buddhist guy, and I said, I said, Deputy Coroner, have you ever felt the energy here? Do you know that there's some kind of other kind of energy floating around? And he said, yeah. He said, I know. He said, I'm a born-again Christian. And this job has renewed my faith. I know there's more to life than just having a body after working here. It was really an interesting experience. How much time do we have? Okay, good. Now... Uh, Mr. Macklin asked if I brought something with me, and actually I did. It's a blues harmonica. Now, it might sound odd that a Buddhist guy would play the blues, but really, what other kind of music would a Buddhist guy play? (laughs) You know? Because all we talk about is suffering and how bad life is. So this is a little spontaneous blues to make you smile. 
to make you feel better about what I've just said. Uh, yeah, let me change. Uh... Okay. Okay. Well, this this is something uh, that all blues guys have to learn if they want to call themselves a blues guy, and this is called a train. So this is supposed to sound like an old steam engine going through the south. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to add a little bit of uh, melody to it as well some little country tunes I'm going to try to throw in there as I continue to make the train sound. So we'll just see how lucky I get today. Here we go. my presentation at Paulus Verdes Peninsula High School on October 9th, 2006. Hope you found it interesting. Hope you found it useful. If you'd like to know more information about me, please visit my website, kusala.info. That's K-U-S-A-L-A dot info. 
If you'd like to listen to more of my podcasts, you can find them at dharmatalks.info. That's dharmatalks.info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit buddhabooks.info. That's buddhabooks.info. And if you'd like to email me, my email address is kusala at urbandharma.org. I'll get back with you just as soon as I can. Well, until the next time, until the next podcast, be happy, be peaceful, and most of all, be free from suffering.